It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornsheen. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornsheen. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs, and I'm thrilled that you're tuning in today. We are continuing in our study of the millennium. That's right, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We've already covered several topics I think would be of interest to you, and if you've missed those, you can go to calvaryfountain.com. This is a ministry, a program of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. Again, the website is calvaryfountain.com. And what you'll find there are our earlier recordings. Just the past couple weeks, we've talked about what happens at the Battle of Armageddon and right afterwards. What happens right afterwards as Jesus descends down on the Mount of Olives and and the battle comes to a a conclusion uh, and a wonderful reign of Jesus Christ begins. We we then examined all the different views about the millennium and and really just talking, at least highlighting three of those as we look at uh, post-millennialism, premillennialism, and even amillennialism. Of course, this particular program, we're taking it from a premillennial view. We are looking at it as a literal thousand-year reign through the lens of historical, literal interpretation. No allegory, uh, no uh, over-spiritualisms here. What we're trying to do is just read it for what it says and learn from that. And that's the safest approach to this, lest our imaginations run wild, uh, because as we look at the literal reign of Jesus Christ, a literal (laughs) 1,000 years, I don't think I can say that word enough, uh, we believe it to be a thousand-year reign, and and we spent a great deal of time on that last week. So again, if you missed it, please go to calvaryfountain.com. We even examined why a thousand-year period, and that's important to understand. I mean, why not 500 years? Why not 12? Why, why that particular number? And we examined then the Lord of the Sabbath and this this 1,000-year period designated to him. And then we even examined a little bit about the durations of time in Scripture and how close we might be even to the return of Jesus Christ. We can certainly look to the headlines today and feel that there is a, uh, a great sense of the birth pangs and the, uh, the, the tension that's brewing and the landscape being set, the stage being set, if you will, for the coming reign of the Antichrist and the seven-year tribulation period that would then end, culminate with this big battle, as we see in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that would then lead into the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. So again, go back, check that out. And if we haven't answered your questions, again, you can reach out at calvaryfountain.com. We love to receive your inquiries, and we have a number of resources we can send you to help you as you're really trying to understand the 18 books of prophecy that includes the book of Revelation. And so in this study of the millennial reign of Christ, we really are looking at it through the study of the book of Revelation and then pulling in other texts like Daniel and Ezekiel to give us a better understanding, and we'll cite some of those here today. So to help me do that, as always, Dr. Steve Ford is in the studio. Dr. Ford, welcome back to Engage in Truth. Thank you, John. That was a great recap. <laughs> Getting us set up for today's show. So the Battle of Armageddon has taken place. Jesus Christ has defeated the forces of Satan. He's come down to the Mount of Olives, which is split in half. Uh-huh. All kinds of amazing things are getting ready to to happen. So it really begs the question of, now that he's defeated, what happens to Satan during this thousand-year period of time? Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, question to segue into this, because we want to look to the hope of what happens during the reign of that's Jesus right. Christ. And certainly something changes. We're going to look at the 
ecological changes, the climate changes during the reign of Christ. And I think there's some real fun uh, theory to that that we'll, we'll look at. We always want to preface it with that, that it is theory. We'll get into that later in our study of the book of Revelation here as we examine the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, but everything seems to change. In fact, uh, the topography changes in Israel, specifically in Jerusalem. Uh, that enables the huge temple, this uh, massive 562,000 square foot temple to be built unto the Lord in which he'll reign from that and the 56 square mile district around it of all the priests that will serve him. The land will be apportioned, uh, set apart for the tribes of Israel. Uh, we we uh, refute any replacement theology. That is Amen. absolutely heresy. Uh, because Romans chapter 11, we see Ezekiel 28, amongst many others, there is a plan for Israel. In fact, a lot of the book of Revelation centers around Israel, specifically even Jerusalem, and God is going to restore the broken branches. He's going to restore his people, and and they are uh, given an inheritance there in the land of Israel. Uh, there's a new agriculture, a new system of operating of everything, even a judicial system. We'll go, we'll go through all of these details as we examine the millennial reign of Christ, but in this we're needing to answer this question you've just posed. What happens to the devil in the midst of all of this? Is this really utopia on earth finally? Because there is the millennial reign of Christ, but then afterwards, when all is said and done, there will be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem that comes down upon that earth. And it talks specifically about God the Father walking with us again, just like the Garden of Eden. And it seems to be bookended with that. And that's the vision, that's the plan as revealed to us by way of the book of Revelation and all 18 prophetic books. But in the midst of this, we have the thousand-year period of time. As you asked, what happens to the devil? Well, let's turn to Scripture, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Here's what we read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. I love that imagery, by the way. <laughs> you see this big angel walking along with this chain in his hand. He's, you know, Satan's in trouble here. And here's what it says, verse 2. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And we see the word then in verse 1 here of chapter 20. That moves this chronological account forward. You see, in, in chapter 19, verse 20, God judged the beast and the false prophet, and he had sent them into the lake of fire. And now he deals with Satan himself. He, he does so by assigning an unnamed angel to manhandle or angel handle Satan. And so in history's most sensational arrest, the cosmic criminal is put in chains and he's bound for a thousand years, according to verse 2 here of Revelation chapter 20. And this serves to remind us that Satan is not Jesus' equivalent. I mean, rather, he's, he's a fallen cherub. That's what Scripture tells us in Ezekiel 28. And it may be the archangel Michael who is given the pleasure of binding him up. So what evidence do I have for all of that? Well, let's see. If we look to Jude chapter 9, or Jude 9, there's only one chapter, Jude verse 9, uh, it's the archangel Michael who's contending with the devil over the body of Moses. It's the archangel Michael in Daniel chapter 10 who's assisting his servant of God against the prince of Persia, and it's Michael the archangel who battled against Satan the dragon in Revelation chapter 12 verse 7. So there appears to be a common thematic element here that Michael does not like Satan. 
So God may be giving Michael here this privilege of being this angel who gets to grab hold of him with a giant chain and toss him into the bottomless pit. I can almost imagine in my mind here a little smirk, you know, just as he's <laughs> finally a little delight. Thank you, Lord, for letting me do this to him. Uh, the principle in this is this, that God is full sovereignty over Satan, okay? There's nothing that he can do that God does not allow him to do. It's like a pit bull on a chain, right? He, he may have a, a leash at times, and maybe that leash goes out a little far, but it is he is on a leash nonetheless. Right. So we have four definitive takeaways from verses 2 to 3 of Revelation 20, that an angel lays hold of the dragon, he binds him, he casts him into the abyss, and he shuts the abyss and seals it over him. And this was foretold some 2,700 years ago by the prophet Isaiah when he wrote in Isaiah 24, 21 to 22, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones and on the earth, the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. And after many days, they will be punished. So it's important for us to understand here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 3 says that the angel grabs a hold of Satan and then shut him up and set a seal on him. Now, we could easily just kind of read that over and just go, wow, okay, great. Yeah, he, he's been punished. He's been sealed over. But what was it that, that Satan had tried to do to Jesus? I mean, think about this for a moment. If we go back to Matthew chapter 27, verses 65 to 66, let me read it again to you. It says, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. You see, Satan had tried to destroy Jesus and then shut him up in the earth and put a seal on him. But here's the thing, this, that seal had no authority over Jesus. That tomb could not hold him, not even death could defeat him, according to Acts chapter 2.24 and Luke 24, 1-12. So what Satan sought to do against God's Son, it's now turned on him. And now he finds himself shut up and sealed for a thousand years in the very abyss where the demons had begged Jesus not to send them. And that's from Matthew 8.29, Mark 5, Luke 8, 2 Peter 2, 4. They don't want to go there. It's not a party. It's not a celebration. They're not jockeying for position in this place. They beg Jesus not to go there. Look how the tables have turned. I love that. So these are future events. Let's keep that in mind. This is a future event. Scripture describes this present time in which we live as an evil age, and Satan is called the God of this world, lower G, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So Satan is free. He walks about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, according to 1 Peter 5.8. But because of Christ's victory on the cross, Satan and his forces are even now a defeated lot. They know their time is short. Scripture tells us that. He says in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So the reason for this heavy-handed response to Satan is given in verse 3 here. It says, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. And it's crucial to note that Satan's great ploy 
has always been deception. That seems to be what he does well. He deceived Eve in the beginning, and he goes down in flames trying to work his deception, as we see in verses 7 to 10. So yes, he is bound up during this time. But I know, Dr. Ford, we're going to get to this point uh, because it's very interesting to think about. That in Zechariah, when we're told to go worship Jesus Christ, when the land is distributed, when the obedient servants have been given cities to rule over, which we'll talk about that, of what happens to the believers during this time in their immortal bodies as they worship the Lord Jesus and ruling over cities of men, and they're told to come to Jerusalem to worship Jesus during the Feast of Tabernacles, some will resist. They will be disobedient. Okay, they didn't need the devil's help at all then right. to be right. sinful. Now, the devil then, we could, our takeaway there is he is an antagonist. He, he likes to provoke us. He certainly uh, likes to move even to the demonic forces of principalities of darkness all around the earth. And as a cherub, that would seem to imply that he had a higher position of authority in the throne room before God as a worshiper. Uh, and we get a description very clearly there in Ezekiel 28, and we see this imagery of what cherubs looked like, their four faces, four wings, uh, the one in the temple may have even, the, the statues there that were over the Ark of the Covenant were about 15 foot in height. We don't know if that's an actual uh, depiction of them, but those were the dimensions that were given to Solomon as he built the temple. So they may be the very ominous presence of these cherubs over these demonic fallen angels. And so we know that there's principalities of darkness, but we blame them for everything when we are very sinful at our core. The psalmist said that, surely I was wicked from birth. Jeremiah talked about the wickedness of the hearts of men, desperately wicked, who could know it. Uh, We don't need the devil's help to be evil, right? right. Uh, But he does certainly provide a a sense of uh, deception, Uh, trying to provoke, trying to get us to betray the Lord, setting up strongholds and various uh, elements within society today. We see through Hollywood and all the spheres of evil and deception and enticement and temptation that he provides to provoke us to evil, but we seem to choose it just fine. Uh, And there will be a judicial court even, we'll talk about that in Micah, that the Lord sets up to to, uh, hear the cases of men, to make decisions in the affairs of men, even when there's, it sounds like there'll be disputes that need to be resolved. And if they cannot find resolution in that, the Lord Jesus serves then as the high court. He's like the Supreme Court over these decisions that must be made during his thousand-year reign. That might be a surprise to some folks, because we always have this imagery that everything is perfect utopia, men are no longer given to sin. But we have those who were victorious overcomers in their immortal state with the mortals who were still given to sin. And this will lead, of course, what we'll talk about at the end of the thousand-year reign and and what happens then. So apparently here we've got Satan bound uh, bound up. That's great news. We could celebrate that. (laughs) Um, I I wish that were the end of it, though, right? Because there seems to be (laughs) Satan is not a finished deal yet. There's even gives us the, the clue here that until the very end... And uh, that, that's really where something I think comes into play here where people get a little a little confused on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are uh, great points. I really appreciate you bringing in other prophetic scripture outside of the book of Revelation to really shed some light on this particular topic. There's, yeah. there's really uh, a lot from the Old Testament to help us understand the millennium, this period of time, what's mm-hmm. happening, why it's happening, all that sort of thing. Right. And it is interesting as well that 
I feel the same way you do. So many times we blame things on Satan and this and that. The <laughs> devil made me do it. it. Reminds me of Flip Wilson back in the day. You right, know? right. But it's our own fallen natures. You know, we fight our own fallen natures. Even Paul said, I, "You know, I don't do the things I do want to do. I do the things I don't want to do." And this yeah. is Paul. You know, yeah. mm. uh, you know, suffering yeah, the same seven. battles <laughs> and just you know fighting our, our own battles that we have with our own sinful fallen nature, and and we've all you know fallen short of the glory of God, and so those are battles we all have to fight. But it's fascinating to think Satan bound. Everybody just wants to stand up and cheer. This is absolutely amazing. This is incredible. So what is what is this release? This release after a thousand years. This is a temporary thing that that Satan is bound for now. Right. Yeah. That's that's the thing. I think is is the thing that gets folks right. It's like wait a minute. Um, why does he get released then? I think right. we love to just go from we would skip Revelation twenty one to three. We go straight to Revelation twenty verse ten right. when all of this is sort of a done deal. <laughs> like, okay, Lord, really? Why would you release him at the end? He's bound up. He, right. He's he's, he's got a seal right over him. him. He's right. right yeah, right where we <laughs> want him to be. Uh, because of verse three here of Revelation chapter twenty, it says, "After these things, i.e., one thousand years." Okay, after yeah. the one thousand years. He must be released for a little while. I wish we could get a definitive on what that means, a little right. while, because after all, uh, we have seen that if we have at all the the right framework of time, that a thousand years is but a day, and a day but a thousand years, as Peter tells us, as the psalmist tells us, um, that that's not a very long period of time by way of eternity at all, that if it is 6,000 years with a 1,000-year Sabbath, a 7,000-year plan here that's revealed with the eighth day then being the day unto the Lord as the Feast of Tabernacles gives us that imagery uh, with the great day at the end, that eighth day. Um, that's not a very long period of time wow. scripturally or by standards of eternity. So what does that mean in the little while? We could certainly debate that. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks with a lot of various opinions about it, but Satan must be released. Okay, so that's, that's a, a moral, logical necessity. And let me explain why. It's, Satan is not permanently bound or cast into the lake of fire. He has to be released, it says here, for a short time. Now, again, in our ma- in our minds, we go from where the beast and the false prophet are round up and thrown into the lake of fire. Why not Satan with them? Right. Not yet. He will, but not yet. See, God has his reasons. I mean, we could probably just end it right there. God always has his reasons. <laughs> <Period>. <laughs> but one perspective is this. There will be people on the earth who are not believers when the Lord Jesus comes. We've talked about that last couple shows. The immortals have been told that they were, would be given thrones. The thrones would be set up. There would be a posture of rulership in which we have a royal priesthood. And that had never been done before in the Old Testament law, that they would have this responsibility of delegated authority by Jesus over people groups to bring them to worship the Lord and to teach them his ways. What an honor. What a responsibility. So there will be generations who have to make a decision to follow the Lord as the generations before them had to do likewise. Even though Jesus is revealed in a glorified, beautiful state, the image that many thought he would come with the first time that he was coming, but it was veiled from their eyes because he was the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Now he comes fully revealed in his glory and fire in his eyes and in the image that the prophets saw, it's wonderful. And now he's ruling over the earth in that beautiful glorified state. However, they still need to make a decision to follow the Lord. So to make the situation equal, let's just look at it from a judicial standpoint, Satan must be freed. 
Because in order for there to be true love, there must be a choice. That's right. A decision must be made. And ultimately, at the end of all of this, at the end of this great story, there has been only those who love the Lord that remain, right? Amen. Even of all that he has created, everything that remains will be that which chooses him over any other option. That's true love demonstrated. The angels, the angels went through this. They were tempted by Satan. According to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, we know a third of them bought into the lie. Right. The, the wickedness was found in their hearts, just like Satan, to be godlike, lower G, right? right. To, 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 we wanted to be worshiped as well. Uh, the world, up until the time of Christ's return, is filled with people who will be tempted and persecuted by Satan. According to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, even Jesus himself had to endure the temptation of Satan in Matthew chapter 4. So those who are born and live during the reign of Christ must face the tempter one more time, as we see in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. And Satan seems to enjoy being the tempter. That seems to be his MO. Right. He likes it. He wanted to sift Peter in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, and Job in Job chapter 1, even standing before the throne of heaven to prosecute Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3, 1 to 2. So God uses Satan's rage, it seems, in 1 Peter 5, 8, and this desire to cause harm for his own purposes. It's like, again, letting out the chain, letting right. out the leash a little bit to allow him to deceive and to destroy. And, and ultimately, it presents an option, a choice, because there were two roads that were presented. Remember right. that? Yep. The wide road that leads to destruction right. and the narrow road that would be a difficult road to walk yep. that led to everlasting right. life. And so there is a fork in the road. Yeah, that's right. right. So even yeah. for those born during the millennial reign of Christ, his reign there will be a choice and yeah. they will see him in a glorified state. And yet we've talked about this. They will still reject him. Yeah. And that's the part I think that we struggle to understand that here, Jesus Christ in all of his glory, reigning from his temple, uh, people going to him to worship him, seeing him in his glory. There's, there's water flowing from his temple. The Dead Sea is replenished with life. The valleys replenished with life. And people go there and they find healing. And all that is presented before them of him in all of his glory, no different than the angels who were in heaven who still rejected him. This is the heart of man. There'll be the Judases yeah. who see him, who hear him, who worship him. And they're like the Matthew 7 believer that they... They've come to him, but they've not done the will of the Father. Right. They don't know the Father. They've gone through maybe some of the motions of pretending to even worship him, yep. but don't really they know don't, him. Don't and know they'll him. reject him at the end. And so we'll talk about that. I think we're going to have to save that topic for next week as we examine then the saints, as what their responsibilities will be during the thousand-year reign. What happens immediately after Armageddon? What's the wedding feast with the Lamb? What does that look like? Uh, how do they, their roles, how are they delegated and so forth? And how do we know these things to be true? And let's, we'll examine those scriptures. And then of course, talk a little bit about what's happening to the unbelievers who right. now see, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and what happens with them and how long people live. And, and there's just so much to cover. There is. And lot. I know we're just scratching the surface. There is. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing for those of us who have accepted Christ is their savior. Just the talk about spending that kind of time with him and seeing him face to face, it just makes your heart want to leap out of your chest. Uh, amen. Just yeah, the idea of being able to be face to face and just in his glorified, you know, persona. Yeah. Uh, and, and the fact that people could choose something other than him 
it just absolutely boggles the mind. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I think that just reveals the hardness of our hearts. Yeah. That even if someone were to raise from the dead, right, they, right, they exactly. will not believe. Yeah. Right. right. And, and so we knew that that statement was true then. It's true today. It will be true in the thousand year reign that yeah. even with his glory, his victory, uh, it says the attributes of the Lord revealed a lot like what we see in Exodus 33, where Moses wanted to see the glory of the Lord and right. it's his attributes yeah. uh, of the father revealed uh, that will not be enough for oh, people. And, and it's just like, and so you, then you see why the punishment fits the crime right. to be cast out into outer darkness where God has separated himself from it. Not that he's unaware of it, right. but he chooses not to be in that place. And that's what he gives them. They don't want God and that's where they go. Right. Because that's and what they that's chose. The seriousness of yeah. it. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, we, we hope that uh, we don't want to leave you discouraged in any way. Rather, we want you to be encouraged that as you listen to this, as you learn and gain further understanding about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, we do believe that Jesus is coming soon. And if you would like any materials to help you explore this study further, if you would love somebody just to kind of guide you through it, we've got a number of resources we can send you. Of course, we'd love to worship with you on Sundays. This is a program of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. Services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sunday. And we have various groups that meet throughout the week. And so we'd love to study God's word with you. We hope you've been encouraged by today's broadcast. And please tune in again next week. God bless you, my friends. Take care.